Amen. Well, please do take your Bibles in hand now and turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, as we begin a new sermon series in that book uh, this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your help as we come now to study this uh, letter of Paul to Timothy. As we move away from Isaiah, we come into uh, a book that is very different, but we pray that your Spirit would open it to us and apply it to our hearts. We pray that as we go through it over these next few weeks and months, that we would be driven to a greater understanding of the gospel, that we might be strengthened in Christ and bold in this present world. Amen. Well, we have just spent the past few months in Isaiah uh, going through that somewhat uh, cryptic, enigmatic language of uh, Isaiah's uh, apocalyptic oracles uh, to the societies that are surrounded Judah and latterly to the whole earth, speaking of God's uh, great act of judgment that is, will come upon uh, the earth. But as we step away from Isaiah, uh, taking a little break from that book, we come now to 2 Timothy. And as we do so, I think we just have to say up front that the contrast between Isaiah and 2 Timothy really could hardly be greater. Uh, Isaiah's driving concern in the chapters that we have just been uh, looking at over these last few months has been to demonstrate to his hearers and his readers the, the grand truth of life. That grand truth that Proverbs 14.12 and, interestingly, Proverbs 16.25 encapsulate when they say, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That is what Isaiah has been trying to drive into the hearts and the heads of his readers. Isaiah's contemporaries, you remember, have been caught up in this futile quest to find significance and security, pleasure and protection in this uh, present world. Now, Isaiah has been lifting their eyes to contemplate ultimate realities and to see that while this world uh, might promise you everything, it can in reality deliver nothing, and that the deep desires of the human heart can only be found in God. Isaiah has been working at a heady level. He's been working at this, at this, at this heady intellectual theological, philosophical level to try and help his readers grasp those ultimate truths of life, fighting to draw his readers back from the allure of the glittering things of this world and instead to find true substance in union and communion and fellowship with God. But now, as we turn our attention to 2 Timothy, we come very much back down to earth, and we do it with a bit of a, a bump. Really, everything about this letter is different. 
uh, from the audience that is being addressed to the context in which this is being written, as well as to the content that is being communicated. This letter in 2 Timothy is not a broad call to consider ultimate realities, but is instead a, a very tender and very personal letter in which Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and giving him what is essentially his parting instructions. This letter, you might be aware, is is the last letter that Paul wrote, at least the last letter that Paul wrote that we have in our New Testament. It's the last scriptural letter that Paul wrote. He's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and Paul is writing from his imprisonment in Rome. Now, this imprisonment is not the one that we end Acts with. Did you remember we end the book of Acts? Paul is under house arrest in Rome. We're uncertain what's going to happen to him. This is not that imprisonment but rather this is a a later imprisonment that has come at the end of a fourth missionary journey that has taken place after what we read in Acts. So, listen to how R.C. Sproul describes it. He says, the apparent inconsistencies between Paul's travels as reflected in the pastoral letters, that is, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, He says, the apparent inconsistencies between Paul's travels as reflected in the pastoral letters and his three missionary journeys as recorded in Acts have led to the suggestion that the pastorals were written during what might be called Paul's fourth missionary journey, either a single uninterrupted journey or more likely a cluster of travels to various destinations in the Mediterranean basin. Acts does not end with Paul's death but rather with his house arrest in Rome. Well, the late first century document, First Clement, suggests that Paul was martyred in Rome. It does not link his martyrdom with the imprisonment recorded in Acts 28. The fourth century historian Eusebius preserves a tradition that Paul was released from that imprisonment, continued his missionary labors, and was martyred by Nero on his second visit to Rome. This tradition is supported not only by the pastoral letters, but by Philippians and Philemon as well, which, if they were written during the Roman imprisonment recorded in Acts 28, provide evidence that Paul expected to be released. By contrast, 2 Timothy, also written during an imprisonment, expresses the apostle's sense that the time of his departure had arrived since he had, quote, finished a fourth missionary journey, and a second imprisonment that took place after the imprisonment recorded in Acts 28 is the most probable setting for these letters. Now, these letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are known collectively as the pastoral letters. But we have to get our terminology straight a little bit. It's not saying that the rest of Paul's letters aren't pastoral. Right, really everything that Paul writes is pastoral. He is a pastor, a shepherd of God's church, and he is writing all of his letters in order to guide and help and shepherd and pastor these churches. Right, everything that Paul writes are pastoral letters in that sense. But these letters, 
are known as the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles because their purpose is to guide both Timothy and Titus so that they could be faithful pastors to the congregations that Paul has left in their charge. Now, Paul's relationship with Timothy in particular is one that is, it seems to be extraordinarily close. The General Assembly, in a few weeks, when addressing the assembly, uh, we will address one another as fathers and brothers. It's a term of respect. Um, and it, it's more than that. It, it's a term that communicates a, a real level of care and concern and, and even affection that we have for one another. When we address an older minister as, as a father in the faith, uh, it's not just a, a little off-the-cuff quip. It's a, it's a statement of how we understand his legacy that we are men who are standing on His shoulders, men who are following in His wake. But when the relationship between Paul and Timothy is described as that of father and son, it seems to be communicating something even deeper and something even more profound than that. Their relationship seems to have been one that was so close that it couldn't adequately be described without referring to to really the relationship between a biological father and son. We saw it here in verse 2, how Paul addresses Timothy as his beloved child. Or in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul goes even further and calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. It's a term that has made some wonder if Paul was perhaps not the man who had led Timothy to his faith in Christ, that maybe Timothy was, in a real sense, the spiritual child of Paul. But whether or not Paul had been the agent of Timothy's conversion, what these titles, these, these addresses communicate is certainly that real depth of affection that connected these two men. And that's evident throughout this, this letter. There's a tenderness that runs through this second letter of Paul to Timothy, right? Paul is not just blogging here, right? He is not just blogging general advice for ministry. He's not just writing an article on, on the, the seven general principles of ministry that could just be published and sent to any minister, right? What Paul is writing here is situation-specific. It's, it's person-specific. Paul writes in this letter, it's pointed, it's, it's caring, and it has this deep sense of Paul's concern for Timothy's welfare in the ministry. Now, in Acts 16.1, we learn that Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage between a Jewish mother and a Greek father. But as we will see just a little further on in chapter 1, his mother and his grandmother were both sincere Jewish believers, women who, like Simeon in Luke 2.25, were waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, these were faithful women, faithful Jewish women, who were eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises in the coming Messiah. Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, we're told in chapter 2, had been faithful to raise Timothy in the fear and admonition of the Lord and 
had instructed him in the Old Testament Scriptures since his childhood. When Timothy himself becomes, became a Christian, we don't exactly know. It's not explicitly stated anywhere. But it is reasonable to conclude that it was during Paul's ministry in Lystra, which was Timothy's hometown, uh, recorded in Acts 14. And what is certain is that the seed of the gospel fell on good ground in Timothy. The scriptures that his mother and his grandmother had taught him came into full bloom as Timothy saw them fulfilled in Christ. Acts 16 tells us that Timothy had a good reputation within the church in Lystra, so good to the point that when Paul returns, he takes Timothy with him on his missionary journey. And Timothy is there by Paul's side throughout the second and the third missionary journeys, and these letters seem to indicate that he was present for at least part of this fourth missionary journey. The letter to the Philippians tells us that Timothy was with Paul in his Roman imprisonment and that he went to Philippi after Paul's release. We're told it was often Timothy that was sent as Paul's representative to various churches that were under his care. Seated in 1 Corinthians 4 and Philippians 2 and 1 Thessalonians 3, Timothy a trusted companion of Paul who is able to be sent as Paul's faithful representative to these churches. But now, in 2 Timothy, Timothy is the settled pastor of the congregation in Ephesus. He's no longer traveling. He's no longer a messenger. He's no longer an emissary sent out by Paul to these various churches, but he is the settled pastor of the church in Ephesus, commissioned by Paul to establish this church that Paul had planted and now bring them on to maturity in their newfound faith. Now, the gospel had come to Ephesus uh, with literally an explosive power. In Acts 19, verse 19, we're told that on the hearing of Paul's preaching, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, approximately $6 million. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Right, it is an incredible scene. Here is Paul coming into Ephesus, and he preaches the gospel, and the result is that you have these magicians that are so convinced by the gospel, so convicted by the Holy Spirit, that not only do they turn away from their sin, but they impoverish themselves as they do so. Right? It is incredible. These men take what is undoubtedly their most valuable asset, these expensive books about the magic arts, and they don't just tuck them away. They don't just see what a, a dealer can get for them. They don't put them on eBay. They don't try to recoup their loss. Right? Not only do they want to turn away from this, they want everything that they once held to, to literally be burned to the ground. They don't want anybody to have anything to do with this anymore. 
they're so overtaken by Christ that their lives are just turned on their heads. And these men are willing to impoverish themselves because Christ has now become their greatest treasure. But as dramatic as the acceptance of the gospel was in Ephesus, so dramatic was the opposition that the gospel faced in Ephesus. Ephesus was, you remember, the, the center of worship for the Roman goddess Artemis. And the silversmiths of Ephesus soon realized that if the gospel took root, it would have tremendous economic results, and their lucrative trade in making replica idols of Artemis would be destroyed. And so, in Acts 19, we're told that these silversmiths whipped up a riot in Ephesus, threw the whole city into confusion, and led the crowd there to chant for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The gospel on the one hand, leading the magicians to to great economic consequences by giving up their, their books, and on the other hand, silversmiths deathly afraid of the economic consequences of the gospel and leading that city into this riot. However, the opposition that the gospel found in Ephesus did not settle down once the congregation there was established, but it did change its form. No longer did the church in Ephesus really have to battle against this potential violent opposition that was initially conjured up during Paul's time there, but, but it changed into a poison, a false teaching that came into the church and threatened its vitality. One commentator, Donald Guthrie, has, has identified four main characteristics of this false teaching. He says the teaching was dangerous, more because of its irrelevance than because of its falseness. It led to two opposite tendencies, asceticism on the one hand and probably licentiousness on the other hand. He says there were many Jewish characteristics to this heresy, and related, there was also some kind of absorbing, uh, some kind of all-absorbing interest in genealogies. And so, the devil, unable to destroy the church in Ephesus with a sledgehammer, now comes in with a scalpel, and through this false teaching, tries to derail the faith of these young Christians. First Timothy is the letter that Paul writes to help this young minister steer this congregation through these dangerous waters. First Timothy is Paul's letter to Timothy to help him know how to shepherd the flock of God and, and guard them from the wolves that would come in and devour their faith. The focus of the second letter is slightly different. By this time, perhaps two or three years after the first letter had been written, the situation in Ephesus hadn't gotten any better, and in fact, we can tell that it had really grown a lot worse. It had grown worse on two fronts. Culturally, to follow Christ and to hold to Paul's doctrine, 
the doctrine which Galatians 1 tells us is the only true gospel, was coming at an increasing cost. This letter was written sometime around AD 64-65, which means it was in the heart of Nero's persecution of the church. It was in AD 64 that that infamous fire had devastated Rome. That fire for which Nero had used the Christians as scapegoats. And to do so, he had, he had fanned those existing flames of anti-Christian sentiment that, was, that were already rising within the Roman Empire. Remember, for the first few years, the Christians could hide under the umbrella of Judaism. They could hide under the misconception that Christianity was just some kind of Jewish sect. The Jews had been granted exceptions by the Romans, exceptions from the emperor cult, exceptions from worshiping the pantheon of, of Roman gods. And the Christians kind of got a pass for a few years, but it quickly became evident that the Christians were not just Jews, but were in fact a different religion. And as the church had grown, and in doing so had drawn more and more people away from the traditional Roman religion, as the church had grown and, and there was this, this mystery that was surrounding the church. We, we talked about it a little in, in Sunday school this morning, this, this misconceptions that grew around, this idea that Christians were engaged in incestuous practices because they, they married people that they called brother and sister, this idea that Christians were, were cannibals, a rumor arising that, that they ate babies, uh, a rumor that arose because, because it was only Christians that were allowed to be present at the Lord's Supper. Well, Christians could come in for the worship service, but they would be excluded before, they, before the eating of the Lord's Supper. And so, to the Roman mind, all they knew was these Christians talked about eating flesh and drinking blood. And then the suspicion that they were engaged in the most heinous acts of immorality. Nero whipped up that anti-Christian sentiment. It is estimated that Nero himself was responsible for thousands of Christians being killed in Rome. You've heard the stories of how he would have them fed alive to wild animals for entertainment, right? We would have Christians strung up and set alight so they were burned alive, illuminating his gardens while he took walks in the evening. And of course, when Rome sneezes, the empire catches a cold. And so as Nero's persecution took hold in Rome, so the lesser rulers throughout the empire were emboldened in their own persecution of these antisocial so-called atheist Christians. But on top of that, the poison of false teaching had not been stemmed, but rather was growing inside the church, undermining sound doctrine and drawing professed Christians away from that true Pauline gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we're told by the time Paul was writing this to Timothy, there had been a widespread apostasy throughout Asia. 
Think of modern-day Turkey. That's what the New Testament is referring to when it says Asia. Those churches, many of whom Paul had planted or had been daughter plants of places that Paul had himself preached. Christians across that region turning away from Paul and turning their backs on the doctrine that he taught. The result was that by the time Paul writes to Timothy, just two or three years after he wrote that first letter, the situation is very different. He doesn't write to a Timothy battling on the front lines, needing some backup to help him fight against this, this rising heresy. Really, Paul is writing to a Timothy now who's, who's struggling. At the time Paul writes this letter to him, I don't think it would be going too far to say that Timothy was what we would call burnt out. A man exhausted by the regular challenges of ministry. A man beaten down by the stresses of potentially violent political opposition. A man who's just worn out by the heartbreak of rising heresy that was, in all likelihood, leading some of his own congregation away. And so, Paul's point in this letter is a faithful father in the faith, as a man of great affection towards Timothy. Paul writes this letter to encourage him in his ministry, and particularly to encourage him to hold fast to sound doctrine. The running encouragement here is that Timothy not yield to the temptation to compromise, but rather redouble his commitment to biblical Christianity regardless of the cost. Let's listen to R.C. Sproul again as he comments on this letter. He says, Second Timothy exhibits a strong concern for sound doctrine and contains marvelous meditations on the grace of God the faithfulness of Christ, and the nature and function of Scripture. There are affirmations of salvation by grace, election, and the divine inspiration of Scripture. Second Timothy also affirms the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. In the face of rising opposition, both from outside the church and from inside the church, Paul's message to Timothy in this letter is that it is for him to hold fast and to press on. He's not to compromise. He's not to wiggle. He's not to give or yield in an attempt to retain those who are being tempted to walk away from Christ or walk away from his own congregation, but rather Timothy is to stand fast proclaiming the biblical gospel, even if it empties his church and even if it costs him his, his life. James Montgomery Boyce, one time minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, once said of ministry, what you win them with, you win them to. What you win them with, you win them to. It's a great caution about using entertainment or programming in an attempt to bring people into the church. Because he said, that is what they will expect as they go on. And they will leave 
when something more entertaining comes along. I think it's sound advice, and there's something of that here in this letter. As Timothy faced these obstacles and these discouragements, Paul's counsel to him is is to not change his message or his method, but rather Timothy was to spend his energies teaching sound doctrine and faithfully preaching the Scriptures. And that is one of the ways in which this letter is so instructive for us. This is a very pointed letter. It's very much a letter of Paul to Timothy. But it is included in the canon of Scripture. It has been preserved by God as Scripture for our instruction. And and this is one of the lessons I think that we can take away as we eavesdrop into this letter. This overarching theme of the letter is one that we need to take to heart, that the ministry of the church, regardless of the trajectory of culture, regardless of the heresies that might arise, it is always the same. The priorities of the church are to teach sound doctrine and to promote the faithful preaching of the Scriptures. Things here and now are certainly not as bad as they were in the Roman Empire in AD 64. We, our president is not currently burning Christians alive in the Rose Garden to illuminate his walks at night. We're thankful for that. This is not as bad as it has been. But we know something of the pressure that comes from outside opposition, don't we? You might have known it personally. The loss of friends when you shared the gospel with them, people that no longer want to have anything to do with you. Maybe it's cost you promotion in the workplace. Maybe you just see it in the the news, the rising tide of opposition to Christianity. We know something of this. Certainly not extreme, but it's there. And we know something of the fracture that comes into the church with strange and new doctrines. Perhaps we could be bold to say that this is actually an area in which we know more of than Paul and Timothy did. We live in a day in which you can literally find any flavor of Christianity that you would personally prefer, right? Especially in America, you can find the right level of conviction, the right level of doctrine, the right level of Christology, the right level of miracles, the right level of whatever to suit your own personal taste. We have seen the, the fracturing of the church in America. We have seen the rise of these strange and new doctrines and the the rise of doctrines that fly under the flag of Christianity, but that are not Christianity at all. The danger is that we begin to strategize. We begin to think how we need to flex and how we need to adjust to meet these coming challenges, right? It's something of what we have just been seeing in Isaiah, isn't it? The danger, that temptation to try 
and take matters into our own hands to secure for ourselves a level of protection in the midst of all the threats that surround us. But here the apostle's clear. The church's task, regardless of what conditions it finds itself in, is incredibly simple. Focus on preaching and doctrine. That's it. Focus on showing people the glories of Christ and building them up in their faith. It's the charge that Paul leaves Timothy with in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's never going to be the most flashy. It's never going to be the most clever. It's never going to be the most entertaining. But it is in this mundane faithfulness that the strength of the church is found. Now, this letter is very different from what we've been seeing in Isaiah. We move from that philosophical, theological consideration of ultimate things down here into what we could call the, the nitty-gritty of faithful ministry and faithful Christianity. In the fallen world, in the midst of all the sorrows and the struggles that can come with it, we are, we are told that really the call is exactly the same as what we found in Isaiah. The situation's different. The way that Isaiah and, and Paul communicate is different. But what is the same is the call to find contentment in Christ. What Isaiah wanted his hearers and his readers to understand, what Paul wants Timothy and us as we listen in to understand, is exactly the same. That true contentment, true, true joy, and true strength can only be found in Christ. When we are captivated by the hope of the gospel and the certainty of eternal life in Christ, when our whole sense of worth is wrapped up in Christ's saving work on the cross, when we understand life through the perspective of God's love manifest to us at Calvary, His eternal election of His people, His perfect solution to our sin, the propitiating work of Christ, reconciling us to the God from whom our sin estranged us, bringing us back like that prodigal son into the arms of a God who lavishes His love upon us. When we understand life through that lens, Isaiah and Paul are saying that we are able to hold fast and press on regardless of what might come our way, regardless of what threats might rise against us inside or outside of the church. When Christ is our greatest treasure, then we are able to, as Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 5, be sober-minded. We're able to endure suffering. We're able to exercise our gifts, and we're able to fulfill our ministry. May God bless us as we begin our studies in this book, and may He increase our love for Christ and His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray for Your help as we continue on over the next few weeks and months going into this letter. 
We pray that you would help us to tease it apart and to dive into it. We pray that you would help us to apply it to our own hearts and lives and even to our own ministry as a church. There are so many gurus around who want to tell us how to do ministry, but help us to just be still and listen to you as you tell us in this letter. Lord, may you use this to strengthen us. May you use this to embolden us and to make us more confident in the ordinary means of grace. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.